Up next, Rob Smith is problematic, part of the Gamers 360 Network. Hello, my fellow problematics. Now look, you may or may not know that I come from a pretty rough background, and overcoming that background and continuing on made me a bootstrapper to the core. This week, I've got probably the most famous bootstrapper in America with me, a man by the name of J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly LG, one of the biggest books of the past decade. So dysfunction, bootstraps, and personal responsibility, this is Rob Smith is Problematic. Again, guys, you may not know that I come from a pretty rough background. I am not a victim. I I do not use this to make people feel sorry for me, but there is a lot of dysfunction in my background. And to understand the way that I see the world, you have to kind of know some of the roots of that dysfunction. I was uh, raised in a single parent household, single mother. Dad was not around. When I was younger, went through physical, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, like all of that other stuff. Um, that that you can think of. I went through this. I talked about it um, in my book, Always a Soldier. Bullied in elementary school. I was the only black kid in uh, my elementary school, so I was bullied for being the only black kid. Then when I got to middle school and high school um, that were, you know, nearly 100% black, I was bullied because I quote-unquote talked white. Dad wasn't around. Was dealing with a lot of this stuff. You know, I have cousins that were in and out of jail, like all of this stuff. And for me, and I've talked about this a lot, what saved me from all of this stuff and what what made me a bootstrapper and and what gave me sort of the discipline that I needed was the military, right? So I come from a great deal of dysfunction. And at this point right now, I I hate dysfunction. I, I separate myself from it whenever I can. But I'm also very curious about the roots of this dysfunction. Now, I told you guys, I want to bring in J.D. Vance to this conversation. If you are listening to this podcast, I don't have to give you this guy's introduction. I'm just going to welcome J.D. Vance to the conversation. We're going to have a talk. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for this. Thanks, Rob. Good to chat with you. Absolutely. So my first question to you is, is someone who comes from a great deal of dysfunction, what is your take on the root causes of this dysfunction? Oh, man, that's complicated. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, everybody's story is different, obviously. And you know, one of the things I always try to tell people is that we've got to make some space to hold two ideas in our head at the same time. You know, one of those ideas is that there are obviously disadvantaged people. There are people like you and me who come from tough circumstances. And certainly in a lot of ways, our life wasn't as easy as other people's. Uh, but you still got to take some personal responsibility anyways. You've got to play the hand that you were dealt as well as you can. And I think we're so uncomfortable in, in modern American politics sort of recognizing, yeah, you can have disadvantage on the one hand, but you've also got to have some capacity and some positive attitude on the other hand that tells people they can still overcome uh, the circumstances of a really rough background. And you know, when, when I think about what, what sort of what, what the root cause for me and, and there was a period where I think my life was really clearly on a bad trajectory. You know, if, you, if you looked at my life when I was 15, I was like close to failing out of school. I was getting terrible grades. I was starting to experiment with drugs and, you know, hang out, hang out with the bad kids, as my grandmother would have said, is, is that, you know, I, I understand, you know, dysfunction 
as, as, as a product of two things. One is the environment around you. Like what are the inputs? What are you seeing other people do? What are the expectations that you're setting for yourself? Uh, because I think the, the, the attitude and the, the outlook that you have on life is, is very much a consequence of what you're seeing around you. And if you see hopelessness, uh, you're more likely, I think, to sort of fall into that trap. And if you see people who are actually doing the right thing, uh, you're more likely to, 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 to make the right decisions and to become something. Uh, and and the, the flip side of it is, is that I, I think I was just a really hopeless kid. I'd kind of started to see myself, as you said, as, as kind of a victim. I recognized that life wasn't fair uh, for people like me. And, and I was kind of turning that into a self-defeating attitude instead of thinking, OK, well, you know, life isn't fair. What do I do with this? How do I get out of this circumstance? How do I rely on the resources that are around me? Uh, to give myself a little bit of a chance. And so I, I, I guess that's that's how I'd put it, is it's a combination of seeing a lot of hopelessness around me and, on the other hand, starting to internalize that hopelessness and thinking that I didn't have much of a chance, which, of course, is just a very self-destructive attitude. Well, it is. And I want to, you know, uh, go back a little bit to what you said, because there's always this idea, um, and this is, you know, talk about modern American politics. We can say left whatever. But there is this idea that if you are not white, and this is the idea that I that I come up against, if you are not white, then the world is hopeless for you. You are a constant victim of racism, of, of whatever, all of this stuff. And it does generate this idea of hopelessness in people. I remember before I came over, I'm, I'm a fairly new conservative, the, the past, you know, three years publicly, five years privately. But I remember before, and I was listening to all of these images, and it would make me think, why even bother? Why even bother to do anything because this world is going to beat you down? And it's really interesting hearing this coming from you because there are people that would say, well, J.D. Vance is a straight white man. So the world rolls out the red carpet for you. Do you think that the world rolled out the red carpet for you because you're a straight white dude? No, I don't. And this is one of the weirdest ways in which identity politics completely warps our understanding of each other. You know, the advantages that I think a lot of people on the left assume that I had because I'm a white guy, you know, as you say, a, a cis, cis hetero white male. Oh, oh stop, a, stop. A, Let me, please, no cis. <laughs> we, we, we have to stop the, the cisgender. I am not a cisgender. I am a man. <laughs> a man, yes. Yeah. No, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's always fun to make fun of the, the rhetoric of the other side sometimes. But, you know, the, the, the thing that I always tell people is that, you know, disadvantage and advantage is much more than skin deep, right? I mean, there are obviously black kids who have a really, really uh, huge leg up in life. I don't think anybody would say that Barack Obama's two daughters are extremely disadvantaged, you know, but you look at a, a kid like me, and I think a lot of people assume because of how I look that I've had these incredible advantages. And, you know, I grew up at times in my family experiencing poverty. I certainly grew up with a lot of dysfunction, a lot of family trauma, a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect. You know, I was 12 years old the first time that I saw my mom uh, carried away in a police cruiser. Uh, I was I was 14 years old when I started to realize the toll that addiction was taking on her and taking in our in our family. That's not an advantaged lifestyle, but I, but I think any standard and where this really bothers me the most is, you know, we have to have an honest conversation about what the biggest advantages for people actually are. And mm -hmm. me, the biggest advantage 
that exists, whether you're black, white, brown, or whatever, is coming from a two-parent loving home. Having Absolutely. a family that cares about you. I think especially if you're a young man, having a father in the home who cares about you and supports you. And if you don't have those things, you're facing a really significant disadvantage. Uh, that's something we're not comfortable talking about because, of course, you know, I, I don't know if people think it's too socially conservative to acknowledge that families matter, that having a stable, loving family is important. But when we're so focused on the skin deep stuff, I think one, it divides us. It makes us constantly think, well, is that person the right kind of person? Have they been advantaged? Have they been disadvantaged? How do I have to think about them? So it creates these weird divisions in our society, but it also causes us to ignore and distracts us from the real nature of privilege and disadvantage in our society, which of course distracts us from some of the ways we might actually help kids who grow up in a circumstance like mine. Obviously, you and I don't look, look alike, Rob, uh, but my guess is that if you had your life to play over again, uh, you would not choose to not be black. You would probably choose to have had a more stable home and family. And Absolutely. that's something we just don't talk about enough when we focus too much on privilege and, and, and disadvantage. The interesting thing to me is that it stops us from being able to to make these connections. And, you know, I, I remember a couple of years before I, I came out as conservative, I was, you know, uh, among my friend group, and, and we're talking gay and lesbian New York City liberals. I was known as, you know, a little conservative when I would speak to things like two-parent households and, 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 and really wish sometimes that I had had that two-parent household kind of like stable upbringing. And there was a, a, a girlfriend that I'd had. And she will, and this is a, a drunken, boozy brunch conversation. But she took such offense to the idea that two parent households were more successful than single parent household. She screamed up and down that she knows so many people that were so successful from single parent household. And and I and I said that that may be true, but you have to understand that this is a statistical anomaly, right? So most people that come from single parent households have a, uh, a a tougher time in life, and so when we stop ourselves and when we're not able to have that conversation in society and we're really kind of focusing on what you call the the skin deep issues i don't know if we necessarily get anywhere and you know to kind of like piggyback on that i said earlier so i am a bootstrapper to the core and what i call bootstrapping is do it for yourself nobody's going to save you and I think that this is what people don't realize. Nobody's going to save you. It's not going to be, look, it's not going to be Donald Trump. It's not going to be Joe Biden. It's going to be anybody else. And I think the vast majority of the problems that Americans are facing need to be fixed within the home first. So even outside of the two-parent household, there there are other things. And I want you to kind of speak to that a little bit. What what sort of, what problems and, and what are all of these issues that could be fixed if we just fix the home? Yeah, that's a very good question. And you know, I'll, I'll frame this by saying, you know, while I you know, certainly agree that you have to have this attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, I, I've never actually called myself a bootstrapper. And the sole reason is I do think that while the left focuses so much on the structural barriers that people face and opportunities, the, 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 like, it is the case and I, you know, you mentioned the military. The military was a really important piece of the story for me. Yes. Um, another really important piece of the story for me was my grandmother, right? And um, you know, she was a woman who was really frail, very poor, who took me and my sister into her home when we really didn't have a home to go to. And she really gave me this tough love and discipline that eventually got me to the Marine Corps and got me on to so many of the opportunities that I've been able to have in my life. 
And, and I, I think that the, 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 one of the things we have to do is recognize, you know, you and I are sort of leaders in a conversation. People listen to us uh, when we talk about these issues is, 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 again, we have to have two ideas in our head at the same time. The first is at an individual level, we need to teach self-empowerment and self-reliance. We need to tell kids, even if you come from a tough background, you can't let that become an excuse for failure. You've got to motivate yourself and you've got to find whatever opportunities that are out there. Uh, Otherwise, you're just going to keep on replicating this cycle again and again. And then the flip side of it is I think as, 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 you know, conversation leaders, whatever you want to call us, we've got to remind people that the biggest disadvantage that often exists in American society these days is the disadvantage of an unstable family. And and the way that, that I often talk about this is, you know, we are so obsessed in this country with talking about the various traumas that we've gone through. And I kind of get sick mm-hmm. hearing, you know, various people just talk and talk and talk about all the terrible things that have happened to them. Um, but, you know, you, you talk to people who come from rough circumstances, and I don't like to dwell on this. It's clearly, you know, clear that you don't like to dwell on this either. Um, but growing up in a family where people didn't look after each other always, where, where you couldn't rely on everybody all the time, where you didn't necessarily know, you know, if somebody asked you for your address, this is always something that really bothered me when I was a kid. If somebody asked me for my address, I wouldn't always know what answer to give them because I didn't know if I'd be at that same address six months later or even a few months later. And that is a real problem that we should try to tackle in our society. We should make it easier for moms and dads, for grandparents when the nuclear family breaks down to step in and take a bigger role in the, in the lives of these kids. And I think about your brunch partner who was you know, so upset about you for suggesting that families actually matter is if you can't even have the conversation, if you can't acknowledge the statistical fact that children who come from broken homes are much more likely to have miserable lives, they're much more likely to be incarcerated, they're much more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. If you can't even acknowledge that fact, then you can't deal with the most significant source of trauma that exists in our homes today, which is the lack of a stable family. Absolutely. So next up, guys, I'm going to talk to J.D. Vance after the break about what role the government has in kind of fixing the problems that are going on in American society today. Keep up with us after the break. Okay, so... JD, I guess let's get into to some things politically here. I know that you identify as a Republican. I, I know that you had a, a a very very big moment with hillbilly elegy and with you kind of becoming the Trump whisperer in 2016 for for all of these you know these elite uh, MSNBC CNN liberals who have never met anybody who didn't vote for the left in their entire lives. So I'm curious to to hear your take on what that experience was life like but also what do you think the role of the government uh should be in in sort of fixing these problems if any sure sure yeah no it was a pretty weird experience for me to go from complete obscurity to going on tv all the time talking about you know the mythical trump voter and you know i liken it to being like jane goodall talking about you know, the sort of the chimpanzees and the great apes of, of Africa, yes. because the way that people talked about it, it was like, you know, so you've actually seen these people who are supporting Donald Trump and you've spent time among them and, you know, you've seen them like, you know, pick bugs out of each other's hair. Like, what are they like? What do they think? What do they talk about? And it was just a bizarre way of like describing my friends and family, of course, uh, to a group of people who, like, to their credit, they were at least curious, at least for a little while, uh, but they just had no idea, like, what was really animating the Trump voter. And, of course, 
you know, so much of what happened in 2016 is that you had this brief moment of empathy where everyone was trying to understand, you know, the other side of America. And that lasted for like two weeks. And then it was all those people are all racist and bigots. That's the reason they liked Donald Trump. That was kind of like, you know, the, the end of this, this sort of two week period of trying to understand America that we had from our, our elites in the media. And, you know, you know, my, my view on the role that the government has is, you know, well, hold on. I want to, I want to get back to, to the media experience. So did you, okay. So the reason why these people are, are take this sort of anthropological view of these people is that they don't know these people. That's right. Um, they have never, these people are not in their families. These people are not in their friend groups. In fact, my audience knows that when I came out as conservative three years ago, I was dumped by about 95% of my friends. So it's not the idea. It's not only that they don't know these people, it's that they do not even want to know these people. I have people that I that were friends for years that, that cut me off like it was nothing. And, and so it's very interesting me going through that, but then seeing that. Did you ever get the sense, and, and I'd be curious to hear this, did you ever get the sense that they were trying to use you to sort of uh, maybe start trumpeting, you know, kind of like left leaning talking points? And and did you think that there was a sort of unwritten or unsaid thing that maybe you would get more media attention, more books, all of that stuff if you kind of pivoted toward a, a left leaning view of all this? Well, there was definitely that. And you know, you may know, Rob, that I was like not a big Trump guy in 2016 and came around over the last few years. And there was, there was definitely yeah. a component of I started to realize that like when I did say positive things about Trump, you know, even in 2016 when I wasn't really on the bandwagon yet, like they didn't like that. Right. There was definitely, mm-hmm. I think, a desire to kind of draw a wedge between me and frankly, like the, the, the people that I grew up around. There was definitely something going on there. The, the other thing that I noticed is that, you know, they, they they really wanted me to kind of like disconnect culturally from that that group of people, right? Like my group of people, right? I mean, I'm sitting in Cincinnati, Ohio right now. My you know my family all lives within a, a 30 minute drive of me, and there was there's this effort I think to try to drive a wedge between me and a lot of the folks that I grew up around. A desire to maybe you know let let's like use JD's story sometimes, not necessarily to understand maybe to make fun of them a little bit or like, you know, I, I have this part in the book where I, I criticize the idea that people didn't like Obama because of racism. And there was like, well, let's pick up on that and really like interrogate that and criticize JD over that. So that there were these weird ways where even though the book was, like I said, briefly used as this kind of empathetic window into the white working class, uh, where it started to sort of not serve the narrative in quite the same way. And people you know, tried to manipulate things a little bit, move, uh, move their their posture vis-a-vis the book and definitely change their perspective a little bit about me personally, but certainly about the book as well. So there, there was definitely some of that going on. And, and the most the biggest way this happened, Rob, I think is is over is actually when the movie came out. Right. Because. You know, I mentioned this period where the book. And I did. Was- I did want to get back to the movie too. So you kind of beat me to the punch. But yeah, okay. go go on. Well, yeah. Sorry. So so the, the movie came out in November of 2020. So just a few months ago, really. And all of the goodwill that existed for the book in 2016 had completely disappeared, and the media had totally flipped on yes. me by 2020. And one of the most interesting things is that the audience re- reaction to the movie was like overwhelmingly positive. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, yes. like 85% of people liked the movie, but the critics absolutely hated it. And one of the most common critiques is that the movie was like tone deaf in an era of identity politics, that it was too 
sympathetic to the white working class at a time when we shouldn't be focused on white disadvantaged people. We should be focused on disadvantaged people of other groups. And it, and it made me realize, you know, I probably got a little bit lucky with the book in 2016 that if it had been more political or or that if it had come out even a year later, I don't think that people would have responded to it in the same way. So, you know, I guess timing is everything. And definitely the book probably benefited from coming out in 2016 as opposed to a couple years later. Yeah. So let's talk about the movie a bit. Um, I did an entire episode about the movie when it came out. So I read Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, I didn't get around to reading it until 2018 because here's the thing. Um, I am from Akron, Ohio. I know white people like, like you, like your family, all those people. I've known those people my entire life. Um, like, you know, poor working class white people are not, are, are not some, not some alien species to me. Okay. Cause I, I do believe that working class white people and working class black people are too sides of the same coin right so I, I had read this book really connected to it but when I read the book and honestly and this isn't this is no shade not a critique or whatever but when I read the book I connected with the story but it wasn't some major like oh my god who are these people these people exist like it would have been to to these you know New York City New Jersey Connecticut elites who have never met a working class white person in their entire life right so it was good so when I saw the movie and I sat down and watched the movie, and this is my, my honest to God thought, I thought I knew exactly what they were trying to do. And for me, it worked. For me, the acting worked. For me, the story worked. For me, it all worked. I didn't feel like these were caricatures. Amy Adams is one of my favorite actresses. I thought she was amazing. I thought Glenn Close was amazing. This really worked for me. And I was very surprised at just the vitriol with which the the media attacked this movie. And so it was this idea to me that they were sneering at these people, but they didn't want to sneer at the people, so they want to sneer and they want to say the movie was a caricature of these people. Or, oh, look, Amy Adams puts on you know some weight and a wig and, and she's making fun of these people. No, these actors and, and, and Ron Howard and the per, per people who wrote the script and all that, they were not making fun of these people. They were actually deeply empathetic of these people you, elite media, film critics, and all that stuff, you are making fun of these people. Yeah, and, and to me, that that's what it was. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this was most powerfully exemplified by Glenn Close's portrayal of my grandma, who I called Mamma, of course, and, and again, was the most important person in my life in a lot of ways. The number of times that I heard people or even read criticisms of the movie that basically said, there's no way that this woman looked like this. Uh, she's a total caricature. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, first of all, it kind of pisses me off because she, she doesn't look like abnormal to me at all. She wears jeans and a T-shirt. She's not like a, you know, she's not a, a super traditional or at least a stereotypical grandmother in a lot of way. But she's, she's not like this ridiculous looking person. I mean, my grandma was just like kind of a normal lady to me uh, as I was growing up. She was tough, uh, but there was nothing about her look that struck me as especially unusual. And of course... If you look at Glenn Close as my grandmother in this movie, and then you wait to the end credits where they actually show you photos of my real grandmother, you realize that she looks exactly like her. In fact, I remember the first time that we saw, this was just outside of, uh, I think, Macon, Georgia, is where they did a lot of the filming. I took my mom, my aunt, and my uncle Jimmy, my, my, my grandmother's three children, uh, to this filming, and we saw... Glenn Close as Mamaw in her full makeup and full garb. And it was like one of the most 
touching moments of my entire life. My, my aunt started crying. My uncle, who's not an emotional man, was just completely like speechless. My mom was just like, you know, I can't believe that's not really her. Uh, the, the idea that like she was a caricature and didn't look like my grandma was just totally preposterous to the people who actually knew me all and loved her and thought of her as like a hero in their lives. So that really, really bothered me. And it made me think that like, if you don't know any actual working class white people, uh, maybe a woman like my grandma just comes across as totally ridiculous, but like she was there and all of her flaws and all of her, you know, incredible humor and affection. That's who she was. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of her. I'm not ashamed of her. And it kind of pissed me off how people responded to her in the movie. And the interesting thing about that is that, um, in, in like what I like about this conversation to, to the black man, white man, very similar backgrounds, but Mama, you know, that character that reminded me of my grandmother, my black grandmother who chain smoked and was, was hard on me and, and everything like that. I, you know, I, I think that people connect to these things and, and very interesting to, to bring kind of like a little racial aspect of it. So, the people, and this is what a lot of my listeners have to understand, and you probably, you definitely understand this. I lived in New York City for 12 years. Uh, uh, I lived in the places, you know, this is where the New Yorker, the New York Times, like all of these people live. There is not a working class white person to be found in Manhattan, you know, or, or most parts of Brooklyn, right? So when you go to McDonald's, when you go to Wendy's, when you go to the drugstore, when you go to all of these employees, like all of these people are black and Latino. And, and, and so these people are just not exposed to, to working class white people. And it was actually interesting when I moved down to Florida and it was just like, man, you know, we just got, you know, white people working at the grocery store, white people working at the Wendy's or whatever. It's just, it's, I just want people to understand what a cultural shock this is. This idea is to some of these um, cultural elites. So coming up, I want to talk about race and I want to dig into some of the ways that the black and white working class operate in similar levels of dysfunction and we're going to get into that right after the break so (laughs) i i have a theory and and i want to run this by you right so the theory that i want to run by you is that i think that if you want to call white poverty if you want to call um you know white ratchetness or or white trash maybe whatever you want to call it and, and this is just you know what people are call it because you know with with uh white people we call it white trash behavior with black people we just call it ratchet ghetto hood whatever so i think that that white poverty and 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 sort of lower class white behavior i think that it is hidden from a lot of our view because elites want to make inequality and the inequalities that exist in our society all about race. So I'd be curious to hear what your take on that is. I think there's a lot to that. And I think that if you're constantly focused on the racial element of inequality or of poverty, uh, then you can actually distract yourself from a lot of the very real issues. We talked about the family earlier, but you know, one example I'll give, and I, I was actually talking about this last night with Bob Woodson, who's a, a black pastor, who cares a lot about these questions of, of, of poverty and, and really spends his life working on this stuff is, you know, a class perspective on what's going on in American society is going to be much different from a racial perspective for what's going on in American society. And I think the class perspective is much more honest. So let me just give one, one basic example. We're currently in this weird era where corporations are obsessed with diversity at the corporate leadership and corporate board level. 
But it, and that is, in my view, a fundamentally racial way of looking at the problem, because when they talk about getting a diverse board, uh, what they really mean is a board that doesn't have white guys on it. Right. That's that's sort of the, the euphemism that they're using. But like, take, for example, a bank. Right. Uh, a bank that has a lot of corporate diversity at the board level. Maybe they just hired you know, a black guy who went to Harvard Business School who grew up in a very privileged background. That's diversity to them, right? That's the way in which race distracts us from what's going on. But then like, let's ask ourselves what that bank is actually doing in its business, right? Is it lending to black small businesses? Is it foreclosing on homes in the middle class, whether they're poor homes or whether they're black, excuse me, whether they're, they're poor white homes or poor black homes? Uh, if we're focused constantly on the racial element of what's going on, then we're ignoring the way in which a lot of the problems and a lot of the solutions that could benefit black, brown um, and white poor folks could actually unite them. Discussing it as a common problem could unite people together and could actually allow us to focus on the real problems that exist in these communities instead of like, oh, we're going to put a token person on the board. Let's ignore the way in which people's lives are actually operating at the ground floor level. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think that's that's sort of what's going on. Is Well, they don't care because this is the thing. And and this is what's going on with a lot of this stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to race hustle, especially on the left. They've perfected this. But one of the race hustles is we're going to find this black man that has come up through every elite institution that you can possibly think of. Right. We're talking, you know, privately schooled, Harvard, yeah, like all of this other stuff. And we're going to put this black man um, and he's going to, you know, he's going to be our person that say we have diversity on this board. And, you know, they'll trot him out to the seminars and put him in ad campaigns, whatever. And he knows the deal. And, and, And so but it's not changing anything really it's not changing what's going on and not only um is this person there for quote-unquote diversity but he doesn't have the experience that the average working class american white or black has and look this is what they did with uh with with barack obama this is what they do with a lot of these very 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 famous and very powerful african-american either political social cultural leaders that came up through very elite ways but yet we are so brainwashed as a society that we are supposed to believe that because somebody has my same skin color that they shared my same experiences and and this is what these corporations play on and they don't want people having this conversation and they don't want people asking these questions yep no that's exactly right and i think you know just to be totally honest with you i think even i in my own way have served to justify the elite system that is not good for a lot of Americans. You you mentioned these elite institutions and Barack Obama. One of the things I've noticed about liberals who like my story, and great, they like my story, uh, I'm, I'm happy for that, but they see it as like fundamentally a triumph of, well, if we just get everybody like JD into these elite institutions, into these great universities, into these law schools, uh, then that's how we're going to solve the problem of poverty, white or black in our country. And so like my biography, the fact that I came from a poor background, went to Yale Law School, serves to justify all of these elite institutions, gives them legitimacy. When in reality, if we wanted to build a society that actually worked better for non-elite people, we wouldn't force them to go to Yale Law School in order to have a halfway decent job. Like we've actually made the university a huge barrier to entry for the middle class in this country. It's not necessary. It's not the case that we should be sending everybody to college. 
it's not the case that it's good for our society to have a ton of debt ridden students who have, you know, not nearly the same job prospects that they would have had if they, you know, had gone into something that was a little bit more blue collar, maybe less yes. prestigious in the eyes of our elites, but is good work that pays well and that can support a family. And and, and, I, and I do think that one of the things that that happens is that we're serving to reinforce a system that's been very good for elites and very bad for a lot of working and middle-class people. When if we really wanted to, again, talk about the real problems and solve real problems, we would recognize that the way that the elites have done things is not always good for a lot of the people who actually live in this country, whatever the color of their skin. Absolutely. And, you know, I get a lot of I get in a lot of trouble for saying this. So I went to, to Columbia University for my uh, for my master's in journalism. <laughs> um, and I get and I get in a lot of trouble for saying this. But this idea that if you're just going to put this black kid or this this if you're going to put this working class black kid or this working class white kid or whatever in an elite institution, Columbia, Yale, Harvard, etc., and they're just going to survive and thrive. It's a bad idea because number 1, there's a lot of these and I've seen this, you know, I've seen this myself, I've experienced this. If you're a working class kid that comes from failing public schools and you're being put next to people that have been educated through elite institutions their entire lives, you're going to have a very hard time keeping up. And so we, we're in this phase right now, and this gets me in trouble. I can say this, you know, I'll, I'll say this for, for everybody, but we get ourselves in trouble because we're funneling these black kids, black, brown kids, whatever, into these elite institutions, the vast majority of which are very unprepared to do this level of work and to be sitting next to the people that they're sitting next to, and then they either fail out or they barely graduate with a crap ton of student debt or... In these institutions, they're literally, uh, you know, turning down the, the the quality of the work, or they're making things less hard because, you know, you have this idea, you know, math is racist, this is racist, all this other stuff. It's actually really ridiculous. Does not solve these root problems at all, in my opinion. I will not put you in the awkward position to weigh in on that. That is just uh, what I think. Well, I'm, I'm I'm happy to weigh in on that because I I think that you're exactly right about the failure to address root problems. Uh, we, we want in our society to create diversity at the very tail end of a person's educational and professional life, right? So you take a 35-year-old or even a 22-year-old at a university. Well, what's happened in that kid's life? Well, you have, you know, four or five years at their home where they've had, you know, no exposure to the school system. Another 12 years on top of that where they've had exposure to either a very good school system or a very bad school system. Like the idea that you can take a 22-year-old kid and just because, you know, they look the right way or they have the right demographic profile and you can just plug them in to institutions after 22 years of institutional failure, of family dysfunction, of poor education – and again, it serves to distract us from the real problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's great when, you know, a kid from a rough circumstance goes to Columbia or goes to Harvard or wherever and, and succeeds and thrives. But what about all of the kids that are trapped in failing schools who never got out of that school system? What about yeah. the kids in dysfunctional homes who never got out of that system? Uh, what about actually building the type of educational system where you don't have to go to a fancy school just to get a halfway decent job? We're not talking about any of that when we hold up you know, tokens who are successful at the university system and ignore the fundamental root problems, as you say, that's, that's making it a lot harder for people to live normal lives. You know, the, the other thing I'll say about this is 
One of the biggest differences between elites and non-elites in my experience is elites totally define themselves by the quality of their credentials and the quality mm. of their careers. I'm sure you've seen this. The Absolutely. amount of self-assuredness and confidence that people get from having gone to an elite school, from having a fancy job, it's frankly kind of disgusting, right? Coming from it's, the background. It's crazy. It's, it's These insane. people, they love titles. Absolutely. They love titles. They love they, these schools. I am like almost a thing. I barely, to my audience, I like begrudgingly admit that I went to Columbia. <laughs> you know what I mean? These people they, love titles. They get, they get high off of titles. They get high off of credentials. And most people are actually a little bit more psychologically healthy, they derive their sense of self-worth from things that are a little bit more healthy and natural, from their family, from the relationships that they have with their friends, uh, from their churches, from the values that they hold. This is how most normal people actually define themselves. Like they don't care, you know, like, like, I mean, I think about this as such a blessing to come from the family that I came from. They really don't care that I have a fancy job. They really don't care that I have a fancy education. They care that I'm a good dad. Like if I want the respect of my family, I have to be a good father. That's all that really matters to my sister, to my aunt. And that's like an incredible thing when you think about it to have that sort of pressure. We all respond, as I said at the very beginning, we all respond to the social pressures and and we should not be building an elite university system that pressures people into constantly getting more and more credentials instead of achieving something meaningful in their work life or in their personal life. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I had a um a friend of a friend a couple of years ago and one thing and I and I always kind of I I think to people like me. So, working class African Americans that are the first people in their family to go to college and and then, you know, get they're obsessed with these degrees and going into all of these that like there's a master and then there's a PhD and then you get a PhD and oh call me doctor and I'm just like I, I have no idea you know what this is all about but if it is that elitist thing and I, I'm, I'm gonna let you go and I want to make one more point that when we talk about um, the ways that these you know these black people or these Latino people or these these um, you know LGBT people or whatever are kind of like placed in these positions um, at these elite at these elite institutions to sort of shore up this idea that this is important what we're not talking about is the fact that we have a very very large but very hidden um you know very wealthy black community and we're talking old money african americans and these are the people who are sort of put you know on the path to to do this stuff and these like i said these people do not have the same experiences as you or or me or, or anybody else so i think that's very interesting so um, this has been a very interesting conversation. I want your your final thoughts on where our national conversation needs to be headed to to fix these big issues. I have a conservative uh, audience. I am a conservative, but we do care about things like poverty. We do care about things like families. We do care about things like failing public school systems. It's just that our ideas as conservatives are not just to throw money at the issue because when you look at uh, how this stuff has happened over the past couple of decades, you throwing money at the issue just doesn't doesn't help. So in, in your um, in your opinion, where does the conversation has have to go, and, and what should we think about doing? So I, I think there there are two high level thoughts I'll leave you with. I mean, I, I think first, the most successful anti poverty program is a viable middle class economy, and this is where I am most aligned. 
uh, with President Trump's entire influence over the Republican Party is that we have to have a viable manufacturing and industrial base in this country, uh, even if that means fighting Chinese predatory trade practices. We have to have good middle class manufacturing jobs. Those are the sorts of things that support viable, powerful communities. You, you mentioned you're from Akron. I'm from Middletown, Ohio. Uh, when you don't have good manufacturing jobs, it really does stress all of the social systems. It oh, stresses man. the family. It stresses everything. So, so again, this is the best anti-poverty program as a job. The best solution to our long-term challenges for disadvantaged people uh, is, is good middle class manufacturing jobs. And the final high-level thought I'll just offer in response is we have got to get away from this obsession with the color of people's skin and where they came from uh, racially and actually start to talk again about people as people. Uh, You probably don't know this, Rob. Maybe you do since you you read the book. I'm married to the daughter of South Asian immigrants. Uh, She does not look like me. She is not a white person. Uh, But, like, we fell in love in this country – because we actually grew up in a society where we really weren't thinking about the color of each other's skins, right? It just didn't really ever yes. enter the conversation with us. And because of that, I was able to fall in love with this girl who's been the source of the greatest happiness, the you know, two boys that I have. Like that was possible because we grew up in a country that taught us not to f- obsess with the color of another person's skin. I think we're really going backwards on this. And people like you, especially uh, those of us who have a voice, have to say enough with the racial garbage. We need to treat people as people. I think there's a fundamentally Christian concept that it's about the content of your character, of course, not the color of your skin. And we need to stop obsessing about race because every time that a liberal throws white privilege in my face or anybody else's face, every time we talk about diversity as a euphemism for one person's skin color, what we're really doing is eroding that sense that we have in this country that none of us really earned. We inherited it from generations that came before us that the color of your skin really shouldn't matter in this country. And the more that we go backwards on that topic, the harder it's going to be to focus on real issues, the easier it's going to be to get distracted by all the racial bullshit. Excuse my language. No, uh, the, the the people love it. No, that was great. Completely agree. And, and as my audience, as the problematics know, I'm trying to sort of break through those barriers every single day. J.D. Vance, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Um, tell the people where they can find you. So I'm on Twitter at J.D. Vance one and I've got a website, jdvance.com. And uh, yeah, would love to hear from people. All right, brother. Thank you so much. And uh, we're going to have to do this again because you got a lot to say. And I think that we got a lot more to say, too. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Take care. All right. Take care. Before we go, I want to thank my fellow problematics so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rob Smith Online. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, researcher Aaron Kliegman, and executive producers, Debbie Myers, and speaker Newt Gingrich, part of the Gingrich 360 Network.